0: This is the current federal tax developments for the week of June the 12th, 2023. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers and I'm coming this week from Phoenix and we're gonna talk to you about some developments during the week. A key one that came up late in the week were three proposed tax bills introduced by the chair of the House Ways and Means Committee. Now we're gonna discuss these bills with a huge caveat that these are proposed bills And we'll also discuss why it is highly unlikely that all three of them would be enacted into law with no major changes so i would be very very careful doing any significant tax planning with regard to these but we are going to talk about them because clients are going to be asking you about the issues so we will have a little bit of discussion about what's in those bills we'll talk also about an irs chief counsel advice that looked at whether wellness identification payments were considered taxable income to an employee and were they subject to payroll taxes under a fringe benefit program so we'll discuss a little bit about what exactly the program did what exactly these payments were and why the irs determined they were subject both to taxation at the employee level for regular income taxes and also part of payroll taxes this was not a medical insurance plan benefit shall we say for this purpose And finally, we're going to uh, talk about a private letter ruling where the IRS granted a taxpayer relief to make a late election to skip claiming bonus depreciation on certain classes of assets that were purchased during the year. An interesting part of the ruling is it was based on the fact that the taxpayer and their advisor had not taken into account the state law impact to some partners of going ahead and using bonus depreciation and now they wanted a do-over which having paid the fee they were able to get so we'll discuss a little bit about how that works and also about the general practice of being able to get some relief for making elections or get late election relief from the irs in certain cases so let's start with the bills introduced by in congress this week the bills are h.r. 3936 the tax cuts for working families act H.R. 3937, the Small Business Jobs Act, and H.R. 3938, the Build It in America Act. They were all introduced on June 9th. Well, they actually were uh, essentially released in many ways on the 8th, but the formal date of they're considered to be essentially submitted is the 9th. So that'll be our date involved. Now, these were introduced by the chair of Ways and Means. And that June 9th date does become important because, as we'll discuss briefly, there are various things in this bill, especially the changes they're going to say be made to the Inflation Reduction Act, tax credits for certain uh, electric vehicles and the like. Those would no longer count beginning on vehicles where you went to, you know, you didn't have a binding contract as of the date the bill was introduced. So date of introduction. So that's also going to be a reason why I'm going to say don't worry much about planning on this bill. Uh, Basically, you might think, well, they're going to get rid of this credit. Let's rush out and get our order in for the electric car. Well, Bottom line is, if the bill were to pass as written, which I think these provisions have especially a tough time of getting passed, as we'll discuss. But if they were passed as written, um, it wouldn't matter because you had to have already gone out and set up your binding agreement to buy the vehicle prior to Friday. Hadn't do that. Tough luck. It's game over. So that's also it. And you know the flip side of that is we'll talk about well do you really tell clients oh by the way you you might not get this credit. Well that's a possibility because of what's going on here. But you also have to understand the basic politics of Washington and why this is a very different world than the world we had when the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was first introduced into the House back in 2017, or when the, uh, let's say, even the Inflation Reduction Act was, or what was then the Build Back Better Act, which eventually uh, kind of got whittled down to just the IRA, when that was introduced in, in the Congress going back in 2021. So we'll talk about that. The big difference is currently no single party controls all three of the key items you have to control, the House, the Senate, and the presidency. Because of that, you're going to discover getting a tax bill passed is much, much more difficult. And generally, if a tax bill appears to be one party's wish list, you can pretty much say it's not happening. And we'll talk about the fact that currently one of these bills certainly is one party's wish list and uh basically for that reason probably has no chance whatsoever uh the others we will talk about it's also interesting we got three bills because you have to assume introducing three bills instead of one big one you know the tax cuts and jobs act came in as a single bill the build back better act was a single bill normally when you have these bills introduced and discussion points they come in as a single bill but in this case, we're introducing not one, but three bills. And my guess is that means that these bills have different purposes and even different chances of being uh, enacted. And that's even to the point of how serious the House is, or let's say the chair is about getting the bill enacted as opposed to not. Uh, for those who don't understand what I mean, you know, last week we had a number of bills in the, heard in the House Ways and Means. And the hearings were very civil. Nobody disagreed. It was things they were working to actually finish things up. They weren't terribly controversial bills, but they basically, you know, just got things done. The catch you have to watch out for in a year like this one, uh, heading into an election year in 24, is at a certain point, we start getting many, many more what we'll call messaging bills. Those are bills that we want to pass. And we really don't want them to become law rather We want to be able to show how they were blocked by the other party. And that is something very easy to do in today's environment, because I guarantee you, you can get the other party to block it because, you know, you you can do what you wish, but the other party will shut it down in various locations. So it doesn't matter what the president says. It doesn't matter what the House says. And it doesn't matter in the Senate. It's the most interesting one of the group, because you probably do have to have some level of cooperation. You're going to get it passed in the Senate period regardless. But even that you know different levels of control so expect a lot of messaging proposals to come in over the next year and that's one of the key things you got to watch for in all of the legislation you're going to see proposed is is this a serious attempt to get a bill done or is this primarily a messaging bill that is a bill we know has no chance of becoming law it's in there primarily so your members can vote for it give the uh, you know give the base red meat and to make sure that you can then claim that the other party has all the blame for this not coming in. And the really good news, and I am this cynical, is that you also find that since it never becomes law, the potential negatives in every bill has downsides. Everything you do in the law has some impacts that aren't good. Uh, those never happen, so you don't have to explain them. That's why happiness sometimes is passing, voting for a bill you know has no chance of becoming law. Now, one of the bills with only a single provision, there is a rumor that came up when we discovered this bill was going to be carved out, this was going to be written in and carved out separately, that it is there primarily to placate Northeastern Republican representatives on an issue. And that also means that nobody's sure if this is enough. And that's also a reason, I suspect, why this bill stands alone. Uh, This bill may be one that they'll need to get passed to get the Northeastern Republicans not to block action on the other bills republicans might like you know because they have threatened before and we discovered this week especially how to do it uh to shut down action on tax bills and not not let them go through unless they you know they they got a significant increase or repeal of the cap limit for state and local taxes so we'll take a look at that and what's going on so let's start with that bill the tax cuts for working families act Right. Came out again. H.R. 3936 came out on June the 9th. Now, what it does, it makes changes to the standard deduction, temporarily increasing it. Right. So the amount will be increased temporarily uh, for two years, 2024 and 2025. Now, these increases only apply for those years. And if your income gets too high, we start losing the increase, this increased standard deduction. Right, that comes in place. We also change the name of it, which we're gonna call it the guaranteed deduction instead of the standard deduction. I'm guessing that they think politically that sounds better. We're guaranteeing you a deduction, but it's not changing anything other than the amount and this phased out that extra amount. That's always been true of the standard deduction. So this is not really some brand new, magical different you know, standard deduction. It's just a standard deduction that if your income is below certain levels would go up by certain amounts. That's the key. Now, this is rumored to be what they're hoping those Northeastern Republican representatives will accept in lieu of removing or increasing the SALT cap. Because there is a, you know, in essence, it probably will be difficult to get Republicans in Congress to vote for a bill, you know, to pass it in the House at least if it raises the salt limit. You know, there'll be a lot who want to vote against that. This allows you to have a separate bill that of course they're going to insist on voting at the same time. We saw some fun with that. You may remember uh, when the Democrats and certain moderate Democrats in the Senate or then liberal Democrats too, there was this concern they wanted the two votes to go together. Some parties didn't. We may get that whole thing now played out, though, on the other side of the aisle, and this time in the House. But I would expect the idea is there'll be some promise that will let you vote for this. We expect that Democrats would vote for it. I mean, they'll, they'll vote for it because I have a little trouble voting against it. And that would then get this relief for those Northeastern Republicans. And then those Northeastern Republicans could vote for the other bill the Democrats would not vote for. And that will let that bill go through as well. So, again, we'll see how this goes. The problem is I don't know how all that works when if you're thinking about the other bill, you're realizing that, wait, that other bill might go nowhere in the Senate and we just pass this and the Senate will vote for this one. So it's like, do we really want to do that? You know, Or do we want to have a, di- a different idea of how to approach this? So we'll take a look. Okay. Now, the explanation of the increased standard deduction we will get a and i love this we, we have the standard deduction additional standard deduction the bonus standard deduction so we got all like three so it's a bonus guaranteed deduction for taxable years beginning after so it won't apply for 23 returns it'll be 24 and 25 only it's in addition to the basic guaranteed deduction and the additional guaranteed deduction so that the guaranteed deduction is the sum of the basic guaranteed deduction which you probably thought of till now the standard deduction right the additional guaranteed deduction. Remember, for those who are blind or over 65, and then the bonus guaranteed deduction. So, makes perfect sense, right? We have all three of these, and each one has different rules. And the only one you're, the only guaranteed guaranteed deduction you are eligible for is the basic guaranteed deduction. So, yeah. So the other two are guaranteed, but not for everybody, and maybe not because you have too much income your guaranteed deduction is no longer guaranteed. You're going to lose it. So, as I say, it's kind of funny. I, I love using the term guaranteed, though. And again, it's a marketing term. Let's be honest. That's the point of this. Uh, for taxable years beginning in 24, the bonus guaranteed deduction is $2,000 for unmarried individual. Other then a head of household. Uh, married individual, you know, $3,000 for head of household and $4,000 for married filing joint. Uh, for 25, there'll be index for inflation, which is kind of funny. It's only going to be around officially for one year that tells me obviously the promise here is that yeah and then after 25 obviously this will be part of the extenders package so we're setting it up to be permanent but we don't want to but we want to limit our spending in this bill even though in reality we're promising everybody that we're going to really let it go forward again these are the games that congress plays and it's not games only one party plays both play these games to you know get the budget numbers to work even though in reality, they're promising everybody that these, they're really going to spend or you know, spend or basically cut, far, cut taxes far more than what's in the bill to make that work. Now, the phase out begins at 5% of modified AGI. And that threshold is $200,000 for unmarried individual, $300,000 for head of household, $400,000 for fine joint return. Modified AGI means AGI increased by the amounts excluded out the foreign income exclusion, the exclusion uh, for a bona fide resident of American Samoa, or the exclusion for a bona fide resident of Puerto Rico. So very limited. For most taxpayers, it'll just be AGI. So it's an AGI-based exclusion. It wipes it out. So again, you'll begin losing it at 5% of your modified AGI. We'll eventually reduce that bonus down, obviously, at $4,000. You know, it takes basically at $80,000, you're going to have it fully phased out even for a taxpayer who is otherwise getting the married filing joint, getting 4,000. So we get to $480,000 is totally phased out. Uh, If we're talking about a single taxpayer, that's going to be $240,000 where we've lost that entire $2,000. Conceptually, the idea is this is going to uh, give a benefit. To a lot of the people, you know, in essence, it will help benefit people. The theory is it will benefit many of the same people that these Northeastern Republicans are saying they need to benefit because they're complaining to them. We'll give them a higher deduction. We just won't directly allow them to deduct their state and local taxes. We'll set this up so it doesn't matter if you are in a high tax state or if you're in a very low tax state, you're still going to get the same guaranteed deduction. Now, again, so we have this with our phase outs now. Whoops. Okay. Right. So basically, we've got that done. Next up, the Small Business Jobs Act. This one was on June the 9th. Now, this adds a couple of provisions that uh, have been discussed. In fact, were proposed last year, as I recall, by Senator Manchin. Uh, But it also puts some sweeteners in here that probably will appeal more to republicans so whether this can pass without a sweetener that would appeal to democrats is going to be a little more open this one i don't think the democrats will find this necessarily as objectionable as they will the next bill but it probably needs a sweetener to get in i'm just saying to me that's probably going to take a sweetener to get it through it's possible it could clear the senate without a sweetener Which case then, if we can push it through the House with just Republican votes, they theory they maybe they can get it through. So this one's there. It would raise the annual payment amount at which you have to issue Form 1099. That has been changed in ages, right? $600, that's the amount. It's going to raise it fairly dramatically. It will also retroactively repeal the revisions to when you have to issue Form 1099-K for third-party payers that were found in the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. Remember, IRS had already kicked that back a year uh, before it would take effect, and that was intentionally meant to give them time to repeal it. So this would be the repeal. It will liberalize the treatment of 1202 stock. Now, this may be a sweetener for the Democrats. I'm not sure, because 1202 did start out under the Clinton administration as a basically something that they were pushing. It would effectively, you know, liberalize and give you a higher exclusion, uh, get rid of the AMT adjustments in many cases, would allow you to get an exclusion without having to hold it for five years. You'd get a partial exclusion after two years, if you recall my background here. So it's interesting and messy, and we're not going to go through that in detail. We'd also increase 179 expensing amounts. That's pretty much just to keep them where they were with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act and would establish rules for rural opportunity zones and add additional information reporting requirements on opportunity, qualified opportunity funds. Now, that last part may be to pay for the rural opportunity zones. So we'll talk about that, but it would have opportunity zones only could be located in rural areas. Uh, Whether that will go through without some pushback is open because obviously rural areas tend to be more Republican areas. That means that you might not find the Democrats being so thrilled about voting for a program that only benefits primarily Republican areas of the country. So, you know, we'll have to see how that goes. But this one does not seem there is anything here that would be wildly objectionable. It seems like this one is a doable bill, assuming that everybody sits down's intent. And while there certainly will be changes to it, those changes probably will be a bit more modest the next bill will have much bigger changes i suspect now we're going to raise information reporting limits from that six hundred dollar cap currently have but the key thing to note about this this does not take effect until we get to payments made for 24 so payments made for 23 will still be subject to the current rules but the, this would increase the reporting threshold for most information returns under sixty forty one and sixty forty one a to five thousand dollars in the calendar year with the threshold amount, including for reporting of direct sales, to be indexed annually for inflation in calendar years after twenty four. So we're going to greatly in, going to greatly increase the amount that you know we would have to report. So unless you paid five thousand worth of, you know payments to an unincorporated entity for services, you don't need to issue that 1099 miscellaneous for your business. Uh, and then also index that in the future so it wouldn't stay static for decades. Right. It also makes conforming change to dollar threshold in 3406 with respect to information reporting under 6041 and 6041A to align with the $5,000 reporting threshold. Uh, both thresholds and backup withholding thresholds are for transactions that equal or exceed $5,000 indexed for inflation. The other one is the scheduled 1099k everybody has been all worked up about. You know we're going to be getting these 1099ks for payments made from PayPal, Venmo, et cetera. This would go ahead and revert to the prior rules. So again, you would require to have a, you know more than $20,000 and respect for 200, you know, 200, you know basically more than 200 transactions before a 1099k would have to be issued. Uh, That'll get rid of most of the other reporting. And as I noted, the IRS already said for 22, yep, you can go ahead and still use those rules. This would simply retroactively enact a law that conforms with what the IRS did and would make that going forward. So this would come out of that. Um, Obligation of merchant acquiring entity are unchanged. So that's also there, keeps in there. House Now, H.R. 3938, the Build in America Act, June 9th, again introduced. This is the one I think is going to take the biggest changes to get through and be enacted and signed by the president. It is the largest bill, but as I say, I think it's going to take some major revisions to get it through the Senate or to get a signature on it, because even though, you know, let's put it this way, assuming the Democrats oppose things in the bill completely, Uh, the Republicans do not have a two-thirds majority in the House. And if the Democrats held firm and voted against it, uh, the veto would hold. So basically, this one, it could be a messaging bill. The idea is to get the Democrats to vote against it or to get the president to veto it and have it not become law. Or it could be the opening salvo in real negotiations. And we're not going to know that for a while, right? now i will tell you if the senate passes a bill that has some of the first things in it that we see here but then pairs it up with a increased child tax credit and gets rid of the inflation reduction act items i'd say we may have a battle of two messaging bills each of which they intend to go down defeat and then explain to people that are upset about the business related tax items not being you know pushed back because the bad news from TCJA not being pushed back they'll just point to hey the other party stopped it that'd be the key now it's already been told that this thing would be dead on arrival in the senate the chair of the senate finance committee Ron Wyden has pretty much said that right off it's yeah this bill not going anywhere in the senate as written it would be there now it does contain three very short-term patches for the tax cuts and jobs act business revenue raisers that people have gotten upset about. Yes, that will include 174. Uh, it will also include the ATI calculation for 163 J for the business interest rules and would include, uh, restoring bonus depreciation to 100%. So we'll talk about that. Now, all of these are essentially short term fixes. None of them, you know, are looking to make this permanent to make their change permanent. Uh, I should say, now, bonus actually does make one permanent change, uh, but it then then turns around and kind of, yeah, we, we get those. I guess no, it actually does make a permanent change. So it's basically the same. It repeals or revises the number of IRA 2022 credits. That is highly unlikely to be accepted by the Democrats. Uh, basically, we're going to undo their big bill from last year. That has about as much chance of going somewhere as it had, you know, when Republicans, when you had to get, you know, 10 Republican votes to move anything in the Senate, uh, trying to get something that was not part of the, you know, basically the budget bills uh, that would have repealed the whole TCJA. It's like, nah, not, not going to happen or major parts of it. Right. Now there are short-term fixes to 174 research and experimental expenses. It does add a separate provision. Now this is what's weird. Rather than just simply saying that the requirement to capitalize your research and experimental expenditures, you know, doesn't take effect until 2026, what this says is that we're just, first thing is section 174 as it currently exists will not apply effectively for 2023. Or actually, basically by with elections 2023 through 2025, but then it will apply in full in 2026 but then adds a new 174 cap a that contains the expensing rules for that interim period. So we get there now bonus depreciation to 10% through 2025, then it will lower the bonus for 26 from 40% to 20%, but then it keeps it at, I know the slide says permanently 20%, but, uh, I believe it is only for 27, which would have been a year. It's going to be at 20% anyway. So remember previously, It was going to start going down this year to 80%, 60%, right? 40%, then 20%. So we're going to keep it from doing the drop downs to 80 and 60, right? We're going to keep it in that range. But we are not, but when we get to the end of this, we're not going to go ahead and let it go to 40. There's going to be two more years of the credit. We will not let it be 40 for the next to last year. It'll go to 20, which, A, that raises some money. We said that 20 for the final year, well, that's dead even. And then it goes away. And again, that's dead even what we had before. So, yeah, it's interesting what they did with depreciation. The only one that we got a relatively clean, we're going to push this back for a couple of years, was a calculation of adjusted taxable income under 163J in order to claim a business interest deduction. That is calculated, as you may recall, prior to this year, you know, prior, or I should say prior to 22, actually, It was calculated using earnings before interest, right? Interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization, and depletion, right, EBITDA. Uh, This year, it would only be calculated by earnings before interest and taxes, right? So depreciation is the big thing that would now count reducing your income and therefore reducing allowable uh, interest expense. This will get us back to EBITDA, right, for this purpose except not amortization, so not EBITDA with the extra A. Uh, So it gets mainly back for that purpose, but it only does so for two years. In 2026, it will again go back to having to include those. So similar problem that we had before. Now, the most important thing, and the reason why I don't sometimes like covering these, but I think I need to because it'll start discussions, I think these are intended to at least some of the bills are intended to start discussions that could lead to a bill in 2023, but no guarantees, guys. Okay, so like I say, at least one of the bills. It is possible that that the bill that includes the repeal the Inflation Reduction Act stuff is a messaging bill that they don't really want to spend the money to fix the business items. So what we're going to say is, oh, we're going to, we're going to put a provision in there that we know the Democrats will vote down. So we can therefore not take the blame for having killed, you know, for having let these things go into law. But, you know, we'll also make sure that we don't have to devote ways of trying to find money raisers to go against these. I also find it interesting that they didn't fully offset this one. Uh, you know, you would have thought because there were other things in the Inflation Reduction Act they could have grabbed and used to raise more money. So, yeah, it's, it's not real clear why they didn't unless they're concerned that, you know, aside from some obvious ones that they're going to complain more about, they they felt that going after other provisions likely were to have at least some pushback in their own party. We ran into that when they were trying to work out the whole debt limit initial vote in the House, that they discovered that just repealing all that stuff, they found out there were various members of their party that were absolutely aghast, and you had to carve out this and carve out that so we'll see how it goes now we do expect the bills to be heard by the committee this week uh, i believe they are scheduled to come up on wednesday or i should say tuesday uh, before the committee we expect them to come out of the committee however it's not clear if if and when they would get to the house floor if you haven't been following the house representatives the past week or so you may not realize that currently the republican majority is having a difficult time getting any bill to the floor that isn't bipartisan in nature Uh, because a certain member is about 11 Republican Congress members are simply refusing to vote for a routine rules. Uh, You know, basically a a routine a routine vote on reporting from the rules committee to allow the bill to get to the floor. And because these are bills that the Democrats oppose in total, the group that does it, even though they support these bills, they are mad at things that happen in the debt limitation, uh, you know, negotiations. So they're, they're just stopping floor action. Now my issue with this is more online that having done this with this group, and I guess I've heard it referred to as the five families in the Republican party, having to get the various different factions to get together to be able to do something. Now, uh, it is very possible, for instance, the Northeastern uh, Republicans who are very, very much want the salt cap fixed and have been kind of dismissed and minimized, let's say, in the past couple of years. But they they seriously believe it's going to put them at high risk in the upcoming elections if they don't do something, getting pressure on it. I could very well see them, you know, if in fact, you know, you've got the Republican tax bill coming up that the Republicans want to vote on, the Democrats will vote no on. Again, just like we had this week on a couple of bills, you know the Democrats will vote no to move forward on those bills. So if you haven't, you know, and you only need, I think, six Republican representatives to be able to kill this, you'll get a majority saying, no, don't move it forward. If all the Democrats come in, uh, yeah, we might see that. So I'm a little concerned that this tactic will be used by a bunch of people and anybody who has a beef with Republican leadership may use this to attempt to shut down certain bills. So, again, getting it to the floor is open. And since the Senate would almost certainly insist on major changes, I would not take actions based on the assumptions these bills will become law. You might caution them about the proposed rules that would get rid of some of the uh, credits on the electric vehicles. For instance, on on the new electric vehicles, it would keep the AGI limits, keep the uh, list price limits, but go back to the rule that once they sold over 200,000 vehicles, we would phase out, they couldn't claim the credit. So there go the Teslas, there go the GM cars, and there's no more credit for those. It would strengthen and make stricter the battery limits. And would simply, you know, if you didn't meet both limits, you would simply have your credit totally wiped out to zero. There wouldn't be this half for each. So a little bit messier. Yeah. It's things like that. They would get rid of the used car credit. I don't know anybody could really use that anyway, but okay. They would get rid of the commercial credit, which you can remember that was being relied upon to allow people to lease cars, you know, people with too high of AGI and cars that had a list price that were too high vehicles that had a too high of a list price could go through the equipment leasing arm of let's say Tesla and Tesla's leasing arm to get the $8,000 credit or $700 credit, and then they could basically use that credit to reduce the lease payment. So there's a backdoor way to get it. That's something that probably isn't gonna go well at this case. So in any event, keep your eye on these bills, watch what they're doing. Uh, But as I say, make sure you calm down the clients who believe these all became law because they didn't. Clients have a tough time understanding the difference between introducing a bill, or even having a positive vote on it in a committee in the house and actually having it become law. A lot of steps have to go through and many of them are not going to, It's not going to clear the hurdles unless at least two of these bills have changes, I believe. Certainly one of them would need major changes. So we'd have to see what they do. Are they serious about negotiations? Are these simply bills to be able to say, Hey guys, we tried, but those nasty Democrats didn't let us do this. And the Senate, we will see the exact same thing on 174 come up and say, hey, gang, we tried, but those nasty Republicans wouldn't let us do it. You see how this goes. So, yeah, we'll just have to go from there. Next up, a chief counsel advice, 2023 23 issued on June 9th. And this looks at a case of an employer who had a couple of different plans uh, related to health care that were being offered to their employees. And this was a case where the, they had a major medical plan and the employer paid for that plan and it covered all kinds of things, which included you know certain preventive care and other items. Right? They also offered the employees a wellness plan. Uh, basically, it was insurance that included a $1,000 monthly indemnity payment if the employee were to participate in various wellness programs under the major medical plan and other plans they had now in many cases the you know either the major medical plan would pay for it like let's say you know getting certain vaccines uh getting you know getting your checkups regularly doing that sort of stuff but then again or the wellness plan would pay for certain let's say special counseling things like that as long as you participate in those programs every month you get a thousand dollar payout now as i recall the cost of policy was 1200 a month but obviously that goes down to 200 and you're getting these other benefits. And so basically you, you could have all these other benefits uh, at $200 a month that would go toward your wellness. Uh, so that, that was the purpose. Now the question becomes, is this $1,000 payment that they're gonna get if they participate in the wellness programs, is that taxable income to the employees? And if, you know, And as well, is it subject to payroll taxes? So those are key issues. Now here's our facts. Employer provides comprehensive health coverage for its employees through a group health care plan. Uh, it provides preventive care benefits such as reimbursement for full cost of flu shots, other vaccinations on any cost sharing for covered individuals. This is a cover is accident or health coverage for purposes of the exclusion of employer provided accident or health coverage on 106 a. So the cause of that don't have to pick that up as income if you're an employee. Additional health coverage, they provide all employees regardless of enrollment and other comprehensive coverage with the ability to roll in, Enroll in a fixed indemnity health insurance policy that would qualify as health attack plan under section 106. They pay a $1,200 premium in the policy by salary reduction through a 125 cafeteria plan. The only payments the insurance companies receive with respect to the insurance provided to the employees are the premium payments. As I said, in other words, the employer has no liability for any costs incurred by the insurance company that may exceed the premiums paid by its employees. Okay, it's a voluntary program. It's mainly intended to supplement their other health coverage through provision of wellness benefits. The first type of benefit provided is that fixed indemnity payment of $1,000, which gets a cost of $200, basically, if the employee participates in certain health and wellness activities. The benefit is limited to one payment per month, and use preventive care, such as vaccination or comprehensive health care plan, which are enrolled, qualifies the employee for the payment for the month. So note, they qualify for it by doing things that basically are being paid for. So they're are not any costs, They just get thousand uh, dollars. It provides additional wellness counseling, nutritional counseling, and telehealth benefits. No additional costs. The employees is responsible for any cost associated with receiving any health-related activity. Although in many cases, all or part of the health-related activity may provide at no cost, costs or is covered by other insurance. It also provides a fixed indemnity, a you know fixed amount for every day you're hospitalized, and the wellness benefits are paying the insurance company to the employer. Who then pays out the benefit via their payroll system puts an employee's paycheck so this is how we ended up doing that that's how this runs okay now here's the catch the IRS ruled that those one thousand dollar payments are taxable and includable as income the one thousand dollars was not reimbursing the employee for any expenses they were incurring right remember the major medical policy or the wellness program itself was paying for most of these things so they, you know, they they weren't they got $1,000 without having to spend a cent as long as they just participated. Um, you know, and that's key. So the IRS says, hey, guys, that's going to be taxable. Now, they do provide a little bit more of analysis here. They say that wellness payments under employer-funded fixed-end contract policy, including if they're paid for in a cafeteria plan, including on gross income, if the employee has no unreimbursed medical expenses, that were incurred to obtain the payment, which in this case you wouldn't have. Uh, the exclusion for the uh, health benefits is uh, limited to reimbursements for incurred for medical care, and does not apply to amounts for which the taxpayer would be entitled to receive, irrespective of whether such expenses for medical care are incurred. The exclusion does not apply to payments when the employee has no unreimbursed medical expense, either because the activity triggered the payment does not cost the employee anything or because the cost of the activity is reimbursed by other coverage. And that would be true in this case. That's what we have. So again, this is where we get it in the income. And again, for payroll taxes, same difference because the payment is provided in connection with the employee's employment It's including remuneration It's treated as wages. And as the IRS goes through and tells us here, while there are exceptions, uh, like, you know, the employer paying for standard health insurance qualifies for an exception. In this case, it won't. Right. It basically is going to be considered taxable, so secure, taxable for FICA and for future benefits. And they give you the analysis about essentially it can't qualify for the exception because they're not made on account of medical or hospitalization expenses with a sickness or disability. And as well. Whoops. The program tells us, right, that it's not really being paid. You know, all those exceptions uh, don't apply to these payments. So essentially the thousand dollars is going to be considered taxable. That's a given in this case. It is a taxable amount. So it's clear that the regulations, you know, uh, are not intended to provide an exception from FICA for this purpose. And a similar analysis would apply for FUTA taxes. Things don't change. Okay, let's talk about wage withholding. Is that required in this case? Well, under Section 3402 of the Code, essentially the answer is yes. We're going to have to withhold wages. So we're going to have to withhold federal taxes from this payment. And you'll probably find out that you will have to withhold state taxes too, because they'll follow the federal definitions here. So that'd be the key. Okay. The taxable wellness benefits are not sick pay. And that's another key, right? Because they're, they're, they're not basically paid because you're sick. Right. They're just being paid because you participate in the wellness program, uh, which in theory is supposed to try to keep you from getting sick. That's the idea here. Okay. The final thing to consider this week is we're going to take a look today at private lettering 2030, 20, 2023, 20, 23001 that came out on June the 9th. In this case, the taxpayer is a partnership that purchased assets that were subject to bonus depreciation. The partnership was not aware that using bonus depreciation would have a negative impact at the state income tax level or some of its partners. So it wasn't aware of that fact. And you know, it sounds like deductions are good. So obviously they didn't think, Oh, we need to elect out a bonus. And the issue was not raised by their tax consultant who was engaged to actually prepare the return. So nobody thought, Nobody actually thought or raised the issue of should we elect out of using bonus depreciation? Unfortunately, as we know, it turns out that, yeah, some states, it would have been better not to do this. So now they want to make a late election. Okay, why in the world would it be better for state purposes not to make the election? Well, it's a problem I've seen a couple of states and it actually impacted Arizona until we, at least for individual purposes, basically conform to federal the bonus depreciation rule and the problem was that if you had a passive loss from the activity coming out of the partnership but the partnership had claimed bonus depreciation, which it, it has to do unless it opts out that you compute the difference between depreciation computed under the way arizona wanted to compute it when they didn't agree with the federal bonus depreciation rules and how the feds did it, that difference would be an addition to Arizona taxable income. And we wouldn't care that in fact, the taxpayers got no benefit from, you know, from that deduction on the federal return because the passive loss rules, you simply had to accept it, right? You have to add that ad back. So that could be a very negative problem and expensive. And yes, it happens. So what were the facts? We have a partnership here. It filed a 1065 on the ta- cash base. Or just on a account of year basis, it's an accrual basis partnership. Nothing big there. It purchased five-year and seven-year property. And it was property that qualified for bonus depreciation. Right? So on a timely filed return, it deducted additional first-year depreciation for these classes of property. No big deal. They do that. Nobody thought anything of it. In order to get this done, they then engaged a tax firm to prepare federal income taxes for taxpayer. The taxpayer reviewed this return prior to filing, but was not aware at the time of the unfavorable state tax implications to one or more partners of the partnership that would arise from the taxpayers claiming additional first year depreciation. These implications were discovered after the return was filed and presumably after they could have filed a superseding return Uh, When connection with somebody, you know, preparing the state return and going, hey, wait a minute, I'm having to add back this number and my client's paying taxes on $20,000. You know, you guys shouldn't have made a bonus depreciation uh, election because it wouldn't change the federal deduction at all for my client and probably for most of your partners, if not all of them. You know, so it's not going to raise their federal tax by a dollar but it is going to raise my state income taxes by a not insignificant sum. So we want to get these things fixed, right? Now, again, the the accounting firm was not aware the taxpayers claiming additional first year depreciation would cause that unfavorable result. So they didn't advise the taxpayer not to take the deduction that we didn't talk about opting out of this. So nobody raised the issue at all. It was just everybody bang, bang. Nobody saw a problem until the preparer for one of the partners uh, essentially saw the problem and is calling up, complaining about why do you idiots claim bonus depreciation? Okay, right. So now they're going to request an extension of time pursuant to Regulation 301.9100-1 and 301.9100.3 uh, under the regulations, right, to make the election under 168k7, not to deduct additional first year depreciation. For all classes of property qualified property under 168k and placed in service by a taxpayer that year under 168k well this is basically how you fix it right the date you have to elect is going to be the due date including extensions for the return now this is provided for in the regulations the statute said the irs can determine right the irs will issue regulations to determine how and when a taxpayer is able to make this election and the regulations provide that you must make it on your original return and by the filed, by the due date or extended due date of your return. And if you don't do that, you have to claim bonus. Okay. That's the way it works, right? Now that's good news for these taxpayers because had the date been set in statute, had code section 168 K seven said that the election to opt out of this must be filed no later than the due date, including extensions of the tax return. And then the statute didn't provide a way to fix that or get a release or get it pushed back. Then the IRS position would be that we have no authority to do this and sorry, you're out of luck. It's like when you failed, when we could carry NOLs backwards, at least carry more than some odd ones backwards. Um, Remember the election to carry the loss forward? Yeah, that had to be made on a timely filed return and that's pure statute. The statute has that. And that means that, you know, the IRS can't really give you permission in that case. Okay. But because this is a statutory election, not our statutory date, not a date set by Congress, the IRS does say they can grant relief for late elections, but you must ask for a letter ruling. And the sections we have is those 301.9100 sections are the ones that go through how this works. So as I say, under 301-900-1, the IRS has discretion to grant a reasonable extension of time under the rules set forth in the other two regs, 301-900-2 and 301 3 to make a regulatory election. Now 301-900-2 essentially provides automatic time, right? And that is for certain extensions, like there's an automatic extension, of time up to the extended due date. If you make an election that Congress says could be made by, you know, by the date, the original return, you know, on the original return filed by the date of the original due date or, you know, or extension, including extensions it filed for. Well, IRS decided that if somebody filed the return in March, didn't go for an extension, but then discovers about making the election later, instead of just encouraging everybody to always extend and hold off to the last day to file, uh, which is going to cause problems for the service. They essentially said, yeah, we're going to have some, some of these things you can go ahead and get them fixed. You know, you can get them fixed by just getting them fixed in that time frame. or a second list says there's a second list that says, if, if you make, if, you know, if you come back and make the late election within 12 months, then we'll let it in the 74 election on a partnership, is one of those that actually has that one year extra time frame that even if you didn't make the election on the original return, but now you discover, hey, I should have done that. As long as you catch that before one year out from the extended due date of the return, you can actually do it there under 301 900 2 But that doesn't apply to us. So if your election is not in-2 dash as an automatic, and automatics are nice because A, you know they work, and B, you don't have to private letter ruling. Then you go to 301-900-3. Now, that can get you relief for any statutory rule. However, it requires you to go get your private letter ruling, right? So request for relief will be granted if you provide evidence to establish the satisfaction of the IRS that the taxpayer acted reasonably and in good faith that granting relief will not prejudice the interests of the government. Now, that last clause, when we get to reality, what they tend to mean by that, is if the taxpayer is now getting the advantage of being able to act knowing something that wasn't knowable, even if they didn't know about it, right? So it's a little different. But we got something that wasn't knowable. You couldn't have known about it no matter what you researched because it depends upon things that happen later. So you have a situation where it wasn't knowable as of the date of the return, the date the return was filed, uh, or at least when it locked down, you couldn't any longer supersede it. In that case, then essentially you're not going to be able to get relief under this because that now you're using hindsight, and that prejudices the interest of the government because they you know there's a reason why they want elections made uh timely rather than waiting, 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 and then finally throwing in elections last second. So we have that issue. Now, in the cases like this, a case like this, the IRS will often grant relief as long as the advisor admits they should have advised the client the issue but did not do so right the taxpayer not make the election based on hindsight they in essence the advisor it would have been clear the advice the advisor should have given right and they would have followed it as of the date they actually filed the return it's not something that you know let's say six months later the law changes and we decide oh wait tax rates are way higher in the future i i want to give up bonus and then use that in the future years will have a much bigger impact on reducing my taxes. That would be advantage of hindsight and you won't be able to make this work. That's how it goes. Now, the other catch, as I mentioned, there are numerous costs associated with this relief. Uh, the problem is you have to pay the user fee for getting your PLR, which is normally starts in the five figure range. You also have to pay for some sort of professional representation, unless the professional doing it is the one that fouled up, but then, Look, they fouled that up. Really, you want to trust them with this now? So that's also a problem. In a lot of cases, you may discover, though, that just the cost of the letter ruling request, ignore the cost for a pro, that that may be so significant that it pretty much eliminates any benefit of getting the letter ruling, be able to make the change, we'll just accept paying the extra federal tax and be done with it. That'll be the way we get out of it. So the IRS granted relief here. It said, based solely on the facts and circumstances that were submitted, they concluded that the requirements of the rules were satisfied. They granted them relief for 60 days. So far within the 60 days, you can then attach the elections, the proper elections, and we will go ahead and allow you to, in essence, opt out a bonus, right? Retroactively. Now the election must be made by filing an amended 1065 uh, with a statement indicating taxpayers electing not to deduct the additional first year depreciation for all classes of private prop or all classes of qualified property acquired during the taxable year and put that in, uh, obviously in this case, they, they did it. So as I said, what's the takeaway here? First thing, remember those 301 900 dash two, and three, especially two you want to make sure that if you have an election that you go, Oh, Oh man, we really should have elected that you want to first go and see whether you're still in a time period where you know, is the election covered by 319 2 And if it is, are we still in the time period to make the election? In which case then you can basically solve this problem easily in a very short time frame by getting it done at no additional cost. But secondly, you do want to know about the ability to go back and get a private letter ruling. If in fact the failure to make this election becomes very, very costly, at which point then the cost of getting the letter ruling, may be significantly less than the cost of, you know, in essence, sitting back and paying the tax. So we want to make sure we're aware of that. Well, this has been the current federal tax developments for the uh, week ended June 12, 2023 current federal tax developments are brought to you by capital financial education and by your state society of CPAs. Uh, like I said, I usually check my emails at Ed at current So if you want to post something there and I see it, I'll try to give a response. Otherwise you can look for me on the connect forums for Arizona, New Jersey, uh, Minnesota, Illinois, Washington, as well as discussion board for Idaho. If you post something there and I think I can help, uh, I may respond there. So keep that in mind. If you're a member of one of those state societies, otherwise we're going to see you back here next week. Uh, I am doing sessions and even some traveling for the week. So, We'll see what I get done next week in terms of updates. I'm hoping I don't do anything major uh, because I won't have a lot of time to write stuff. I'd like to have a week that was about as quiet as this week. Uh, I don't know that I'll get my wish, but that, that's a whole nother issue. So we'll look at it that way. But in any event, we'll see you here next week, we talk about more in the area of current federal tax developments.